outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Onyx. We are here for a podcast that I am really damn excited to be recording. Uh, it's it's me here and the nine-fingered wonder, Dan Johnson. Dan, we are here for a celebratory conversation. I know. If it wasn't so early in the day, I think we both should be hammering some beers while we record this. Who says Who says we're not? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I guess you are on Eastern time. Yep. Um, yeah, dude. Today, we are talking success stories. Um, you killed a great buck in Iowa, so I want to hear about how your rutcation went and how you killed that deer and dive into all that. And then, as you know... Um, my three-year story chasing the buck I called Tran just came to a close, too. So I want to recap that entire saga, um, dive into details, dive into how it ended and some of the lessons learned along the way and, and all that kind of stuff. So this is, this is uh, man, it's a culmination of a lot of stuff for both of us, you know? Yeah. I love the, I love the text messages, you know, the, the got him, that's yep. it. And instantly we, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I'm, I think I threw you a, a text when I shot mine too. It was like arrow launched or whatever. And, uh, mm-hmm. those it's are best the, text. those, yeah, those are the best ones. That's it's, it's what I enjoy probably more than anything this time of years is, is just, you just wait and wait and hope that there's going to be some good news from someone. And when it comes, Ah, it's what we we work for all year long, man. So you want to, should we just get into it? I mean, we got a lot to cover. Um, I do have one one quick kid story that I I have to tell. And (laughs) it is a, yeah, it's a, so if you're the kind of person who bitches about this part of the show, fast forward about two minutes and then I should be done. (laughs) So, um, so don't don't fast forward. This is the good stuff. All right. So. I, I'm rotating laundry, right? I, I take the, the laundry out of the washer and I put it in the dryer, hit start, go away for about four hours, do something, come back. Oh, God, I just, I'm getting angry even thinking about it. 
opened the door and someone had put a entire canister of glitter in their pocket <laughs> and it is now I don't know how many times I'm gonna, <laughs> I don't know how many times I'm going to have to dry those clothes to try to get it out of everything and take the filter out it is all over the place and I don't know if you've ever been so so angry with your children that you skip the anger and you go right into this deep dark depression because yelling at him isn't going to do anything that could change it nope nope and you know you get the dad son of a bitch (laughs) and then uh, oh man it is your wife know yet yeah all i did was show her and she's just like figures and then she walked away like (laughs) She just like kind of left it in my hands. You guys are right? at that phase in life right now where it's just like, oh yeah, another shit on the floor that we need to deal with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, oh, wow. <laughs> man, I, Mark, it must have been full because it is all over. I mean, we had a, a fleece blanket in with that load of laundry. I don't know if it's ever going to be. Like if if I'm afraid to take it out of the dryer because it's probably just going to do one of those things where it just continually spreads all over the house until it's literally everywhere. So the only way this could have been better is if this had been you drying your hunting clothes and all of your camo was covered in glitter. That would be the one way this could be better. Imagine your hunting clothes (laughs) covered in glitter and deer just pegging you from the sunlight bouncing off you. And like, like, oh, there's... It, like it happens like if it happened like November 4th, so you have to hunt the next right. day. You're not going to not hunt, and you're yeah. not going to have time to get new clothes or deal with it. So you're just stuck out yeah. there with pink glitter everywhere. Yeah. And then you shoot a buck, and you have to take a picture with your glittery camo too. That would be yeah. Oh, that'd that be so demeaning. Be special. Oh, but you would deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you know what I would try to do? I would try to market the gimmick uh, somehow uh, and make money off of it. Oh, there's always an angle. There's always yep. an angle. Man, the big, that is the big box glitter. That is amazing. That's right back into the real world, huh? You had all this grand hunting success, and then right back to domesticated there, life. There's no easing into anything anymore. It no. is straight kick to the nuts every single morning when I wake up. Dead life. Yep. Welcome to your life, buddy. You mm. should have pulled out, <laughs> and it's wham. <laughs> so, so, so tell me about the glory days back when you used to sit in a tree and see big bucks and, uh, weren't worried about glitter bombs in your laundry. How did, uh, how, how did the rockation kick off, man? It seemed like it was fast and furious. So here's what I'm going to, here, here is my, I'm going to say two things. South winds and warm temps Ugh. is what I deal dealt with. So I'm going to preface this conversation with a conversation that we had all the way back on episode 78 with Matt Ross, the science behind um, the whitetail rut. Yeah, or whatever. throwback edition. Right. That was way back throwback. in the day. Well, Some guy uh, two days ago hit me up and was like, dude, I love that episode because you kind of call out some things that people think are uh, – you know, like I think we talked about moon phase. We talked about warm yeah. temps. We talked about weather patterns, deer movement, all of these things. So I, I go back and I listen to it and I'm, I'm reflecting back on 
the seven days it took for me to harvest my deer this year. And I'm thinking back, I'm like, dude, Oh, what Matt said is, is, is really right. And if I'm open to observation and looking around, even in warmer temps, I, I would say that I saw equal deer compared to last year's rut, which was below average temperatures. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, man, I should, maybe I should stay out for a night or because the temps are warm. Well, I didn't do that. And I saw the same amount of deer. The only thing that gets, that started to get tricky with this rut vacation was that I had so many South winds in a row that I was worried I was going to bump some of my best spots. And I ended up having to really play off a handful of hunts like a morning hunt or an evening hunt and go somewhere, somewhere else where I knew it wasn't the best option, but I knew, I knew that I would have a better chance at connecting with a deer on, let's say the next morning, as opposed to maybe sitting that place, uh, back to back or three days in a row or whatever. So I opted to go to a different South wind area. That would be like choice number three or four and hit, hit choice number one after it sat for a couple days. Right. Okay. And so, how did that start panning out? Dude, I saw great, I, I was seeing great deer all, you know, like I saw some shooters, uh, way in the distance. Um, I passed a couple four-year-olds this year, uh, that had less than desirable racks. Um, I, I passed a couple really good three-year-olds this year in that time frame, And I did it all without freezing my toes off. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I wish I could sit here and say I had some hardcore strategy story for you about how I um, did things different or made all these game plans and chess moves to try to to shoot a deer. Um, and I'll get to the, the the kill story here in a second. But man, it's like I just follow through followed through with what my goal was, and that was check trail cameras, look for fresh sign cycle through my stands, uh, you know, the best possible stands on the wind direction that I'm given, make the best choices for access routes and, uh, you know, run and gun whenever I needed to. And I put myself in position of some really good deer. The only thing is the, the big deer that I were, was chasing did not show up while I was in the tree stand for that area. So Real quick, those best stands, uh, I mean, I know we've talked about some of these places in the past, but can you illustrate, like, what do these things look like? Are these all on pinch points? These are all back in the timber, I'm assuming, but were you mostly doing bedding area sits, transition, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Yep. 90% of my hunts. So I'll, I'll tell you this, an evening and a morning of that seven days, so two hunts out of 14 hunts resulted in me hunting bedding downwind of bedding downwind of bedding or or flanking bedding uh and putting myself what i would say would be where bedding and edge connect does that make sense yeah so you're saying all but two or just two were downwind of bedding every one except two okay yeah yeah that makes sense then yep so 
my access points or my access routes were on point. I mean, I took no liberties there. I was played that wind hard and with a south wind you can you know and in some of these areas you've hunted them throughout the years you get really comfortable with and knowing what the deer are going to do how they're going to do it you know what the thermals are doing if the the sun's out or if the temps are where they need to be and uh man i had some really cool encounters uh with a lot of deer i didn't get busted and it just it was one of those it was really fun to be in the tree that first week in November, watching all the action happen, you know, I watched the the three year olds and and some of the four year olds really do that rut thing where they were chasing does around and you know watching them just dive in and out of bedding areas all morning long. It settled down probably about ten thirty ish, eleven o'clock. I'd get out of the stand, go to a new spot, and they'd pick right back up about two thirty ish, and just kind of a, nothing really crazy where one doe brings about fifteen deer through. But more of this one-on-one interaction where, you know, there may be a spike buck following a three-year-old or something like that. So uh, I really focused heavy this year because I felt like, for some reason, I felt like the warm weather was going to keep them out moving around all day long. So what did I do? I went to where the concentration of deer movement is going to be the highest, and that's bedding areas. So I put myself downwind or flanking with a flanking wind into bedding areas and, uh, man, had some really good encounters and, and, uh, had a blast doing it. And you were passing on these good bucks. Was that just because, well, you're, you're seeing these good bucks passing on them. Was this because the best bucks that you had on camera were still showing up and you believe they were there or, uh, where was your head at with that? Did yeah. you have a couple in mind? Yeah, so that buck I passed last year, uh, he was a really beautiful three-year-old, probably in that 140 class, maybe 145 class. Yeah. Uh, he was an 11. And so this year, he blew up to, a am going to say, low 170s. As a, as a four-year-old, he could be five, who knows. But he, he, he made the hit list, for sure. And then there was the buck that, I ended up shooting. I had maybe one picture of him throughout the entire summer, but the other guy who hunts the property had pictures of him all summer and all October and all November, <laughs> right? So we kind of put our trail cameras in a little bit different of places um, just so we're, we're not really overlapping each other. And uh, we've kind of had a we, we communicate now more than we used to in the past. So, you know, I'll send him a pick of a deer and say, Hey, you run into this guy or he sends me the deer that he kills. And I send him the pics that he kills. And then we exchange any trail camera photos that we have of these deer. Cool. So, yep. So it was, uh, you know, I, I had definitely the one hit lister on camera. Number two and number three, uh, you know, both were big 10 pointers uh, no, one was a nine and one was a 10. And so I go to check tra- trail cameras the first day back, you know, I, I hunted up here the morning of like November 2nd and the evening of November 2nd, uh, before that hunt, I went and I checked all my trail cameras, pulled all the cards, went, looked at them all on the computer and number two and number three were both broken all the way. I mean, like dramatic you know, they were just a G2 
and a main beam. So they had knocked off a ton of points. One broke off almost his entire side. So number two and number three were to me were both like, you know, I don't even want to hunt the areas where these deer are running because I don't want to shoot a I don't want to shoot a broken buck. I want to shoot, you know, something that's put together and that just that what this does is it now if these deer survive into the next year, it automatically takes them out of the equation and now they can come back, right? Yeah. So I wasn't really into shooting a broken buck. And so I stayed out of that area and, uh, focused my attention on a couple other places where the big one had run a couple times. He was kind of hit and miss on trail cameras and let's see. And then I went back to the one bedding area that I shot my deer last year, just kind of hoping that gnarly Charlie would show up. Right. You know, almost like Holyfield. Yeah. Wishing on a prayer. Maybe he'll be there again. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've thought about that too, where it's like, well, I really don't know where to go. So let me go to in a, a, let me go to a historically good area or stand location and let's just see what happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and basically that was it. I had, I, I got there and one of my cell cams had been stolen and I got pissed and, and, uh, I was hoping that he would show up on one of those cameras, but if he shows up on that camera, he typically shows up on a couple other cameras on the farm. He did not. So, um, I think it's fair to say he has either gone and disappeared to go somewhere else or he's been, you know, shot and killed or, or died of a disease or whatever. Cause typically deer stick around and they don't necessarily come back if they, if they're gone, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I hit that bedding area up a couple times and that's my favorite, that's my favorite bedding area to hunt now because the wind does something so awesome in there. And we, I'm sitting at the actual top of a ridge and on this ridge, it's real thick on top and it create it opens up and creates this edge and along this edge where this edge meets this, I call it a spur ridge. And it's a, a really small terrain feature, really small ridge that flanks a bigger ridge. And sometimes there's those terrain features are so small that it doesn't show up on topographic maps. Or if it does, it's so subtle that you really need to focus on what you're looking for in order in order to identify it now the closer that the uh, topo lines are to each other the easier it is to tell but if they're you know they're you know 30 feet apart or, or 100 feet apart you're, you'll never see it right so i sat there i passed a really good three-year-old and then i basically sat on uh, a really big ridge with a south wind blowing over the top of the deer and uh the does just weren't coming through there yet, which, which tells me that, you know, they're still, they're not getting pushed all over the place yet. And so I went back to, um, that main bedding area again. And, you know, I, I, like I said, before I even started rambling here is I wish I, I, I wish I could sit here and break down everything for you. But at the end of the day, it, uh, most of my success this year was just dumb luck. Explain. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's November 7th. Uh, I don't even remember what I did that morning hunt. I think I, uh, 
I hunted that big ridge again, and uh, then I went and I checked some trail cameras, went back home, did some work on the computer, and I'll be honest, man, I, I wasn't hitting the timber until 2.30, and some of the times I wasn't even, I wasn't even set up in my tree until three o'clock or a little after three. And just because I was trying to get work done at home. So I wasn't up until midnight trying to, you know, get, you know, get work done and then wake up at four and and get back out, out there. So, so I ended up driving to, uh, I was going to do a hanging hunt on where a corner of a marsh meets, uh, like a tree fell over a fence and they really crossed there a lot. And throughout the years, I've had really good uh, trail camera pictures of really good deer crossing through there. My number one hit lister had been through there, I think, two days before I got to the farm. So I was just kind of like, it's a new south wind. Um, it's a new place on a south wind. I can flank their travel real hard, easy access. And so I parked at the end of this little sliver of timber inside of an, it was in an ag field. Once they combine it, they let the cattle in. So then it turns into a cattle pasture. So I, I said, man, there's no need for me to walk so far. I'm going to pull up about 200 yards closer and just save me, you know, three minutes of walking or whatever. So I put my, I, I load up and I'm, I'm getting ready to go to that fence crossing. And what I, I get loaded up, stand, bow, backpack, everything. And I, I've been running my Ozonics in my backpack as I'm walking to and from my tree stands. And, I, and that's a little foreshadowing because I think that actually helped. But I park about – so I, I get out of my truck. I load it up, start walking, and I'm about 80 to 100 yards. This is no joke. 80 to 100 yards away from my truck, and it's pretty windy out. And I look to my right, and I, I'm looking in this big, thick section of timber – inside it's like just a pocket of timber and i said man that's gotten thick throughout the years i bet you there's some deer that feel real comfortable in there i took two more steps and i see tines come up out of these bushes <laughs> and they just come straight back down and come up and they come down so this buck is raking a tree and i go oh my god that's my number one buck he's right there and so i i I get lucky here and there's a giant, giant tree right in front of me. So I just take one big step and now I can see his back half, but he can't see me because I'm behind this big tree Wow! and I'm able and the wind's blowing right at him. I mean, the wind is going right at him. I slide my backpack off, get my arrow knocked, put my release on and I creep around and I, I couldn't see him anymore, but I, I kind of, I thought I saw some fur or something and I click the, I I range the bush in front of him, 19 yards. I range the bush behind him, 29 yards. And he's right up against, he's, he's closer to the back end of that gap. So I, I turn my dial to 25. I got a single pin. So I turn my dial to 25 yards draw my bow, get my, uh, kisser button anchored. And I step out and his nose is straight up in the air. He's caught something, right? Like mm-hmm. what, what, 
what is this? Like you could tell his body language was changed. He wasn't rubbing the tree anymore. And he had since kind of quartered away, but he was looking straight back. You know, like sometimes when they itch their ant- their back with their antlers or they're, they're grooming themselves, yep. their heads turned all the way. Yep. And he was like that. And I step right out. I'm already drawn and his nose is in the air. And I'm like, man, I was, well, before that I was shaken so bad because I thought this was number, I thought this was number one Yeah, and I was missing the D loop on my, on my, uh, bowstring with my release. Like when you're trying to clip shaking. on. Yep. Yeah. Cause I was shaking so bad. And I said to myself, Johnson settle down because if you mess this up, you're not getting a crack at him again this year. Uh-huh. So handle it. So I, I, I took a deep breath, got composed, drew back, step out anchor and let it fly and he meet he i heard i could hear the thud through through the wind just like this best sound little yeah best sound mule kick and he runs off and (laughs) i was so fired up and when he was running away that deer looked 200 inches running away (laughs) i was like oh my god what did i just do like this (laughs) never happened first deer first deer i ever shot on the ground yeah it's nuts man and so anyway, he ends up, uh, he ends up diving down into this pocket, running across a, a cattle pasture. I could see my arrow hanging out of him. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I did not get the penetration that I wanted on that. I'm going to say a little, I'm going to say less than half an arrow. And I'm like, but if it's that much, you still, it's still good. So I just stop what I'm doing. I pull out my phone. And I call one of my buddies up and I'm like, dude, I just shot what I think is an absolute giant. I, I, everybody at the time that I knew my, my buddy who helps me drag out sometimes down there, he had COVID my mom and my stepdad, they both had COVID. So I was sleeping in the garage at during rut vacation. I wasn't in the house. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I, uh, I, I call up my buddies. He's like, I'll be there. And I said, I'm going to go to impact. And I'm going to see if there's blood and then I'm going to, uh, back, back out and then I'll wait for you. Well, I drop after I hang up with him, I call my wife, told her what happened, drop down into where I shot him. Really good blood, like perfect bubbly bubble blood, right? Like, and, and like good splats of it. And so I end up, uh, following it for 10 yards, following it for 20 yards. And then I just, it starts to open up and it's really good. And it's, it's for a, for a seasoned hunter who has been on a lot of blood trails. It is a no brainer lung shot. Now, my question I had to myself was, is it one lung or is it both lungs? Because he was kind of quartering, you know, quartering away at Mm -hmm. the time. And so I back out. And I wait a handful of hours for my uh, buddy to come and and, uh, help me track this deer. And he brought one of his buddies too, uh, another guy that I know. And long story short, we start picking up this blood trail, man. And uh, it's very good blood, very good blood. Now we're starting to see where there's two blood spots every bound, right? So there's, there's two holes in this deer somewhere, right? And he is starting to bleed really bad. We find the arrow and it's broken off. 
right? And there's blood all the way up to the fletchings. So that tells me as he's running, he kicked, he kicks it out and it broke somehow. And then we get into the timber where we, where, uh, he disappeared from me after I shot him. Right. That's probably a hundred yards. So I watched him run a hundred yards before he disappeared into this really thick, nasty little area again. And, uh, um, the blood trail, not going to lie. It's awesome when you can just at a normal walk, follow it. No hands and knees, grid searching, just blood all over the place up oh, here. Want to see? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, man, we walk up on, we walk up on him and, uh, the shot ended up being one lung front side lung and, uh, trachea and jugular. So he, he just got smoked. He got destroyed. And, uh, he ended up running about a hundred and 120 yards maybe. And then piled up and, uh, and then, you know, you get that moment that is, I don't know, man, it's one of those, it's, it's a surreal moment. The first time you ever get to touch the animal that you just killed. I, I don't have this same feeling for turkeys. I don't have this same feeling for uh, fish or any other animal that I've ever hunted uh, as far as, you know, big game. But that moment where you get to grab his antlers and pull his head up and sit down and put your hands on this animal and appreciate it, it's, uh, it's just, there's no words, man. I, I, you can't, it's different for everybody. And, uh, I just felt so happy at that moment. And, and it wasn't my number one buck, but it did not matter. It's if we're going to sit here and put, uh, numbers or uh, a level to it, it's probably my second biggest buck I've ever shot. And it's uh, a beautiful deer with awesome characteristics. And he's a beautiful 10 pointer, four year old. And, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm geeked out, man. You should be. That's yeah. uh He's a heck of a deer and a crazy story how it came together. I mean, uh, like you said, it's not like you put together this master plan for him, but it's really cool in its own unique way. When sometimes you have these crazy things happen that you find yourself in and you can take advantage of it, that's that's awesome in its own right. So I'll tell you what, what, what I will say is that from a strategy standpoint, I was going to where he had already crossed so he was already on his feet. He came through the area that I wanted to hunt. And, uh, so from a strategy standpoint, I guess if you want to say, uh, I was going to the right location, it's just, he beat me to it and I ended up shooting him on the ground. Well, well done, my friend. Yeah. Congratulations on a, uh, another successful Iowa season. Yeah, man. I, I, uh, I'm so happy the best. The, and one of the other parts is today. Today I picked my buck up from the processor and there, my, my deep freeze is now full again. And that puts an equal smile on my face as it does walking up and touching him for the first time. Gotta have that full freezer. Yeah. So, um, my story isn't crazy, right? First time I ever saw this buck on the hoof, probably, um, I got a shed laying out. It might be from him. It might not be. Who knows? Not a big deal. But uh, this uh, this deer named Tran <laughs> that uh, that you've been 
following for a handful of years kind of met his match when did you end up shooting him what day was it i shot him sunday november 22nd i think would have been the date yeah um i think that 22nd was i think that's, that's what it was and that's after the rifle season yeah yeah in okay. rifle season okay um, so the seventh I day have, of rifle season eighth day of rifle season Oh, so did you shoot this with a bow or with a rifle? Let's wait till we get to the story, Dan. Okay, shit. Sorry. I know I should know better than this. So <laughs> so why don't you kick it kick it off and go all the way back? So this story begins in 2018. Okay. So that year, if you recall, was the year after I found another buck who I hunted for a long time, Holyfield. I found his shed that spring. And so I thought maybe that buck was back for year number four. So I was planning for him, looking for him. And, you know, in the summer, the summer arrived, he didn't show up. September arrived, he didn't show up. October arrived, and he didn't show up. I got pictures of a big eight-pointer. I'm like, maybe that's him. But it, it was kind of like weird pictures, like foggy or not great lighting, different things. So I couldn't really tell, but he had tall G2s. And I'm wondering, maybe, possibly, but probably not. Well, that buck I was getting pictures of was this deer. I eventually did get clear pictures of him and realized, no, it's definitely not Holyfield. This is a new buck, um, or at least one that I hadn't identified in the past. And he was like a, just a really nice, tall eight-pointer with kind of curving tines. Um, and my guess was he was just a, a cool three-year-old. And I pinpointed him as, as like the best up and coming buck I had in the farm right then. I, I started seeing him quite a bit, got some cool video of him, um, and knew that he'd be the deer that if he was around next year, he'd be one I would probably the best buck that I'd have around based off what I was seeing. So I started keeping tabs every time I saw him, every time I got a daylight trail camera picture, I started noting it way back then, even though I wasn't trying to kill him. Um, Fast forward, you know, later into the year, the whole Frank thing happened. If you remember, this really big 10-pointer showed up on Halloween that year, um, and I hunted him for a month and, and ended up seeing him on the evening of December, it was like the 7th, 8th, or 9th, so one of, somewhere right around there, and Tran showed up that night, and I passed on him at like 60 yards. Um, this was, this was uh, the late firearm season. And, um, and passed on Tran that night. Uh, and then like 20 minutes later, the big guy showed up and, and killed him. So that was basically year one, uh, with Tran. Uh, I guess I should make one other point. I did actually see him in person once in the summer and got velvet video of him. Just didn't connect the dots until later in the year. But, uh, but he was there in the summer, was there all through the fall and was of, of bucks of that caliber. Like he was other than Frank, who was this big new buck, Tran was the best deer. There was one three-year-old that was him that was showing up a bunch. And so I kind of just knew, like, he's the one. If he makes it, he'll be the one next year. Um, right. Quick question. Yeah. All right. So as you start to calculate or put together an inventory and, you know, like Frank that one year was your number one target buck. Um, Holyfield in the past has been your number one target buck. How much thought do you give to these other deer throughout the season or what are they doing while you're in the process of hunting your number one target buck? Well, the thing is because I'm hunting such small spots, there's almost never more than one deer I would actually shoot. 
Um, like the main farm I hunt is a little over 80 acres, but half of that's just open crop field next to a road. So really it's like 40 some acres that I'm actually hunting. So there's only ever one. There'll sometimes be some other bucks that are up and comers that I'm keeping tabs on, but I I've rarely have I had like multiple definite mature bucks that are there consistently that I could actually like put a game plan together. There's usually one that calls at home. Um, I also got permission a few years ago on a, on part of a small, like, 20 acre piece that I could start hunting a little bit too. So that gave me a little bit more. Um, but basically what I do is usually there's one mature one that I'm after and I'm keeping tabs on him, hunting him. But if I get a buck, that's like a really nice two year old or a three year old, I start kind of keeping tabs because it seems like from what I've seen in this area, usually one buck of that caliber will make it through. So there might be three bucks, three or four deer maybe that I'll see in a given year that are two or three years old. It used to be all two-year-olds. Now we're getting to the point where I'm seeing some three-year-olds, um, but I'm, I'm passing on those now. So in any given year, there's maybe one buck that's four, and then there's a couple two- or three-year-olds that I'm watching, I'm observing. When I'm hunting, I'm paying attention to what they're doing, um, but I'm not actually going to shoot them. So in 2018, that was the story with Tran. He was the one deer like that. Um and, you know, coming into the, the following winter, I thought, all right, man, this is the year. 2019 is going to be the year of Tran. I'm really hoping he made it. I really hope I can find his sheds. I'm going to get after it hard. I'm going to review everything I learned about him last year, put together a game plan. So shed season came. I pounded the timber. I got permission on neighboring properties to shed hunt those spots. Never found him. Um, fast forward into the summer, and in August, he shows up in the field. Uh, there was a bean field next to one of these places and I saw him and instantly you could tell it was him. Um, just essentially the exact same formation as last year, just everything bigger. Um, awesome, tall, tight eight pointer, um, biggest eight pointer I've ever seen in this area before. So he was, uh, he was awesome and I was smitten. Um, and then the whole thing was reviewing all that data I had thinking through, okay, when did he start showing up in daylight? Where were the daylight pictures? Where did I see him in person? There was a lot of activity with him towards the back of the properties I had permission on in 2018. So I kind of assumed that that might be like, there's, there's a couple different bedding areas on some neighboring properties that I kind of hunt around and and I'm playing movement going in and out of those spots. And it was the back bedding area of this 80 acres that I thought, man, he seems to be spending more time back there. So my assumption was that that's when it would happen. But we get to, oh, I guess it would have been opening day. It was opening day. Opening day of 2019. Um, and it was a hot one. It was going to be really warm, way above, temper- way above average temperatures. But the next day, day two of the season, was going to be this big cold front hitting. So every year, I always look at opening day as like one of my best chances in this area. It seems like year after year, there's if there's a good buck around, they'll be active in late September and the first day of October, maybe the second day of October. But then pretty quickly they change when all these other people around me start hunting and I start hunting. Um, but because, you know, because I was a little bit too stuck on the weather and, and folks, I know, you know, these, you've heard some of these stories. I want to put it all in one place so we can kind of see the whole trajectory. So Bear with me as you hear some of these stories again. I've been talking about this guy for years. I know that. (laughs) But as we've talked about last year, 
I, I decided to observe on night number one. So I sat on a hill on the ground couple hundred yards away from this front food source, this actual little food plot system I'd built specifically for these types of scenarios, tight to a bedding area on a neighbor's. Um, I didn't have any much good cover on my side. So I kind of carved in these food plots and planted all these sorghum strips and um, created a really cool zone of food inside good cover right next to the best bedding. And it's year in and year out turned out to be a pretty good spot um, to get at least an encounter or two per year with one of these good bucks. And opening night, I decided I'm going to watch from afar and then strike the next day with this big cold front hitting. And, and that's the night I thought that the big boy might hit that spot. Well, Long story short, I sat that night and watched this front food plot and Tran shows up that night, even with the warm temperatures, and walks right past the stand that I would otherwise have hunted. So that was a bummer. I went in the next day and he didn't show up the next night, but another really nice three-year-old did, like a 130-class nine-pointer, and I passed him. Uh, that's the best buck I'd ever passed up to that point. So it's cool that a, a really nice up-and-comer showed up. Um and, and we usually don't have multiple deer like that, but that year, so 2019, there was Tran, who I believed to be four, and then there was two other, like, 130-class three-year-olds um, at that point in the year. So it was a weird thing in that, for whatever reason, we'd had more good bucks survive, um, and I was just at a new place in my hunting journey where I was going to pass on deer like that. But it felt crazy having a deer like that, which is a really top tier deer for Michigan, have them at 15 yards broadside and not shoot. But I, I knew I had to save one of my buck tags for the back 40. And I knew I wanted to save one of my buck tags for trans. So that's what I did. Um, question. Yeah. So do you feel that Holyfield was the dominant buck in this little area that you have access to? He definitely was for that two years when he was mature that I was hunting him. And I watched him for three. Frank. Same question, Frank. He really didn't live on me. He he showed up out of nowhere the the year that Holyfield disappeared. So the previous two years, I only had like one sighting of him. I got one trail camera picture of Frank three years before I shot him. I saw him one time in December, the year before I shot him. And then the year I shot him, he showed up in a big way on Halloween and basically stuck around for a month. Uh, so for that month, he was the dominant guy there. But the rest of the season, there really wasn't a dominant buck. Okay, so we'll just say the that deer though was the dominant buck in the area for that moment, yeah. Okay, and then the other uh, the buck Tran this year dominant buck. Uh, starting in twenty nineteen, he was the man. Okay, cool. So the question I have uh, for you then is: Do you f- what what is it about the this area, this property that you hunt? whether it's the the management that you do, whether it's the does, the terrain, whatever, what is it about this little area that brings in an above average dominant buck for Michigan to stay in this little area for a given period of time? Yeah. So I think I've got a, a, a set of circumstances that that's that's nice to have. Um, even though it's a small property that I can hunt, I've got a couple things. I've got myself who, and I'm the only person who hunts my little piece that I have sole permission on the 80, um, 85 or whatever it is. Um, so I am very picky there and I don't shoot anything under than under than four. Then I also have within our like square mile block. Um, there's a handful of other people in that square mile who also are, you know, they're not shooting everything. 
Um, they're at least passing on year and a half old bucks. So there's a handful of people in our square mile who are at least letting deer get to two, which in Michigan is not a given. So there's a lot of places where everyone will shoot the first buck they see. So to have a spot where, you know, you can get some of these bucks through, that's, that's a good thing going for me. There's also a couple of the pieces in this square mile that don't get hunted very much. Oh, there's a bunch that get pounded, but then there's also a couple almost sanctuary properties. And I think that's a big thing that helps me. I'm, I'm next to one of these spots <clears throat> that's relatively lightly hunted. And that one of those spots has really good bedding on it. So there's like a 20 acre chunk within one of these pieces that is just nasty, tall grass, bushes, brambles, um, just kind of the premier bedding habitat for, for Michigan. Um, and that is this zone that is just packed with does every year. And whenever there's a dominant buck, which there usually is one buck will make it to four. Usually there's usually one deer like that. And he always is, is hunkered in and around that stuff. That's just, it's the best spot. They always lay claim to it. And there's a lot of ladies in there. So every year I know there's going to be one of these guys in and around that spot. And traditionally I've just had to hunt around the edges of it. But that would at least give me opportunities. And, and once or twice a year, they would come to my side. Um, in the case of Frank, I was able to get a shot at him. In the case of Holyfield, I saw him a bunch, but never was able to get a shot at him. In the case of Tran, in 2019, um, you know, he had a couple, I had a couple encounters with him on my side, but it was, it was a lot more sightings on properties I couldn't hunt him. But there are spots I could see into, but couldn't shoot him. Um, that's the, to answer your question. I think that's why I've, I've been able to get some of these deer that, that make yeah. it to that age and then stick around. Cause it's, it's, it's a relatively small pocket, but it's a really good pocket that usually doesn't get bothered. So I think these deer just know like come gun season, I'm not leaving it. And yeah. traditionally I haven't been harassed here and, and that gets them through. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Yeah. So do the does stick around all year long on, on that property? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's usually uh, just consistently a lot. It's a high deer density area too. So there's a lot of deer, a lot of does, um, you know, always a bunch of young bucks. And then, you know, over the, I've hunted this area now for 10 years, I think. And, you know, it's, it's come a long way. The very first year I hunted it, there was one deer that was three and that was the best year or that was the best deer. The next year there wasn't a single deer I thought was three. Um, the following year, there was a couple three-year-olds and a five-year-old, um, no, sorry, two-year-old, a three-year-old, and then a five-year-old. Um, and, and then I'll fast forward to the last couple of years and we've had, you know, multiple three or four-year-olds or even a multiple four and five. Um, this year I had a buck that I think was four and a buck that I thought was five. So, you know, I think between my efforts to pass on some of these deer and then some neighbors that I think are doing the same in, in a couple different pockets in our square mile, I'm guessing that's starting to help. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was the situation. Um, you know, I passed on that buck on the second day of the season and then it was looking at historical data, which told me that, you know, based on the last year, he's, he, at least the first year he was around, he didn't really start moving like a whole lot until around the last week of October, which is, is kind of a, that's common for deer all over the place. And it's common for this property year after year. 24th, 25th, 26th of October is when things seem to kick into gear. And there's almost always a hot doe that last week, like almost like clockwork, the 25th, 26th, somewhere around there, there's going to be a good buck chasing. There's going to be a hot doe with a bunch of bucks on her. So every year, right around that time, I make sure that that's going to be when I start getting after it. And, and so that's what I ended up doing in 2019. Uh, but it wasn't until Halloween night that I actually saw him. Saw him chasing doe on Halloween night. And then after that, it was almost daily or every other day sightings, at least, or encounters. The 2nd of November was my closest encounter with him in bow season. I hunted the backside of a small bedding area that was on my side of the property line that was closest to the best bedding area that's on the neighbors. And I've found that I can catch during the rut these bucks will scent check each of these bedding areas. So they'll leave the best cunny hole pocket on the neighbors and they'll come down to hit the kind of ancillary spots that I, that I could hunt. If I, if I hit those places long enough, eventually one of these good bucks, you know, typically will come through one of these mornings or middays during the rut. That's what happened in Holyfield when I almost got a shot at him, but I was reading a book in the middle of the day. Um, and that exact same stand is where I had my closest call with Tran. It was the 2nd of November, and there was a doe in this little thicket right behind me, and Tran was with her, and they, they came out of there but just passed a little bit out of range. I think it was 45, 47, 50 yards, somewhere in that ballpark. I remember them coming through, and um, 
and passed out of range, went into the big bedding area. And, and that was the last I saw of him that day. I had six more sightings um, over the course of November after that. And again, mostly was in that honey hole, thick stuff over there. And I'm just bouncing around the edges, trying to make a guess, like, when's he going to come to my side? Thinking through wind, thinking through different hypotheticals, like where most of the doe is coming out to feed into my stuff. Because the property that I had access to, as I mentioned, was mostly a cut cornfield on one side and a cut bean field on the other. So most of what I have to do, other than those little back bedding areas I mentioned, was hope that he'll follow a doe that's feeding in the food plots or the, the fields on my side. Um, to, to make a long story short, I do that, see him, but never on my side or never in range all the way until December rolls around. Now it's gun season and we're in muzzleloader season. Uh, I have no qualms about shifting to whatever the legal weapon is of choice. I put in a ton of work to get after these deer and it is not an easy thing to do in these spots where I'm so limited. And with so many other hunters around me, they're taking the guns out there. I certainly have no problem, you know, playing by the same rules as all of them. So I took the gun out there. It's December 17th. I'd waited till a big cold front and like the bluebird skies, high barometric pressure, um, cold day. Um, I've been watching this cut cornfield that I could hunt and a lot of deer have been feeding there, but I hadn't been seeing the big guy. But with the weather system that was coming through, I thought, man, um, this is probably the night to push back in there where I thought most of them were coming out. And sure enough, that's what happened. He came out of the neighbor bedding, crossed to my side. But by the time he crossed to my side, he popped into the field, but was heading straight away and behind branches of these trees that stretched out over the edge of the field. And I had him in my sights, like in the back of his neck. Uh, but I just, I didn't feel taken, didn't feel comfortable taking the shot as he was moving and branches and didn't like that angle, of course. So that was, that was the closest I really came to killing him that year. Um, it was, it was exciting. It almost came together, but didn't. And, um, a couple of weeks later, I saw him one more time on the last day of the season, something spooked him off another neighbor's property and like 25 deer come running off another property. And he was in that group and came running by like a hundred yards away. Um, so I knew he made it to the end of the season. That was like the last 20 minutes of daylight of the last day. And he was still alive. So that was how 2019 wrapped up. I, I was hopeful that he made it, but it had been a long, tough season, you know, chasing him only to, you know, kind of have to watch him in the distance so often. Um, so that's how year two ended. Yeah. And I, and knowing what I know, it's kind of cool because, um, I think this is the same deer. Your, when was your youngest son born? Yeah. So my youngest son was born at the end of January. Okay. All right. So, so we have this, this time frame. Is there any, like throughout the rest of the time till we start getting into that February, March time frame? any, any, anything else significant happened with Tran? So no, all I knew was that I really wanted to find his sheds. All right. All right. So 
you're, foreshadowing here, your wife's, <laughs> your, your wife is super pregnant and she says, let's go take a walk. What uh, happens? Huh? So she, she's due. She's supposed to be giving birth to the baby like any day now. And she, like you said, she's like, we need to go for a walk. I need to kind of just work this thing out. And, uh, I said, well, if we're going to go for a walk, why don't we just go do it at this spot I can hunt and let's walk the cornfield and maybe we'll get lucky and, uh, find an early shed. And this would have been like January, I don't know, January 26th, 27th. 28th, something like that, late January, but still pretty early to find antlers, very early to find antlers for a lot of places. Um, but I thought if we're going to walk around somewhere, might as well do it where there's a chance of finding something. And so I go out with my wife, who's very pregnant, my almost two-year-old son, and both of our dogs. And we just barely get into this cornfield. I mean, we're 40 yards from the road or something like that. We're just getting out into this cut cornfield and I see tines and I'm like, holy crap, there's an antler right there. And I go running up to it. And once I got close enough to see it, I realized, holy crap, that's, it's the antler. It's him. It's trans shed. And then I look a couple feet away and there's the other side, his (laughs) match set sitting right there, just barely off the road. Uh, my least hard shed hunt of all time. <laughs> like the craziest, most lucky thing that's ever happened to me. The match set of the number one buck I'm after and uh, got to do it with my wife and my son. And uh, it was wild. It was crazy. And I guess I should have looked at that as maybe foreshadowing of, of more good things to come. But uh, yeah, they're sitting here right behind me on the shelf. And, and that just sent tran fever to another level because now I had the match set off a buck that I was hunting in Michigan. I've never had a match set of a deer. Well, I've never found a match set of any buck in Michigan, I don't think. And now it was one that I could actually hunt. And it was a deer that would be five if he made it to hunting season. Um, So was really excited about that. Um, What's awesome is like these stories that you have, and I don't know, they're almost unbelievable because (laughs) it's, it's like, you're, you're writing it. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. here, here's, you know, this year, this is what happened. And then it's like this climactic, this climactic story. And then boom, here's the sheds. And it's, it's, it's almost like you don't even know, need to know the rest of the story. Cause you're going to shoot this deer, right? <laughs> it's just like found the sheds. I had all this history with him now. And now it's just a matter of time till you kill him. Man, it never feels like that to me though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the guy who's spending time in the tree state yeah. waiting out. Yeah, man. It uh but yes, I've been I've been lucky to have a little pocket where these bucks feel comfortable and I'm able to, you know, not always be right on them, but at least be seeing them and having the occasional encounter and getting to know them and and the other nice thing about this area is that I can because there's some a little bit of topography, more than a lot of places in Michigan, and there's some spots where I can sit up on hills and see down into some of this bedding, which is relatively open when you're looking at it from above. So I've got good visibility to some of these places, um, which leads me to having a lot of these sightings too. Um, but yeah, found the sheds. It's crazy. Um, fast forward into the summer, my whole plan, you know, in preparation for the 2020 season was all about this buck, um, prepping new trees that I wanted to hunt in the saddle for him this fall. My year, you know, as we talked about a few months ago, was, I was going to be more aggressive than ever before. I wasn't going to, you know, basically I was, I was going to make moves immediately. I was going to push into some spots that I typically maybe wouldn't have maybe even earlier than I would have. Um, I just wanted to 
hunt them down. I was, uh, even though I'm limited in a lot of ways, I was going to hunt them down was my plan. Um, and then uh, a few things changed, which, which cha- this year three was really all about change. I had all these plans, I had all this historical data. I, again, I, like I did in year one in year two, I've, I've documented every daylight sighting, every daylight photo, what the wind direction was, what the temperature was, where this was, where he was coming from, where he was going. So have all this stuff. And this, you know, has fully informed what I think I'm going to do in 2020. Um, you know, I've, I've changed my food plots to try to encourage him to come out a little bit further. I planted different stuff. I plant it in different ways. I changed tree locations. Um, I see him in August. He shows up again. I'm seeing him. He shows up a handful of times that I'm out there and you know, I'm confirming that he's alive. He's a mega stud, Michigan five-year-old. Um, this is incredible. I'm so excited. Quite a few daylight sightings leading up to the opener of season. I think I saw him two nights or three nights before opening day. Um, but then a few things changed. Um, number one, I end up getting a little bit of additional permission on another neighbors who I'm able to hunt some of that good bedding now that in the past I had only been able to watch. Now I was able to hunt some of these places. And, and that was totally new for me. These are places I've watched, but never been able to get in there. So all of a sudden, all my ideas of having to hunt these edges, having to hunt this back bedding area, but not being able to hunt the primo bedding, having to kind of depend on him chasing a doe into one of my food plots or an opening. Now, all of a sudden, I don't need to just wait for those things. I can actually go into the best of the best stuff that I've dreamed of forever. Yeah. Um, so opening day, all that stuff passes and, and he's gone. He's a ghost. One, one second, one yeah. second. I, I, I think you're undervaluing that right there. I mean, we can't just skip, you know, can't just say, well, I gained access to this farm because I think I've been in a scenario where that little bit of access plays a big role in maybe not killing him, but figuring him out. And so did that small little access that you got to that additional property get you closer? Did it get you, I mean, did it, did it help in just a little way or did it help in a big way? Helped in a big way. Um, if that hadn't happened, the story you're about to hear would be dramatically different. Right. Um, because of several other changes that came about, there was all these things that changed. And, um, if I hadn't gotten that extra permission, I would have probably had my worst hunting season out here in years, maybe ever. Yeah. So my whole point of me bringing this up and, and kind of emphasizing that particular point is what Mark did here is big. He went after it. He just didn't sit and wait. He, he went and he made moves to try to access a piece of ground to get him closer to this buck. And I honestly think people don't do that enough. Man, access can make all the difference. That is for yep. sure. And, yep. um, and it certainly did for me because I got, I had this extra access now and you know, opening a couple of days went by and I stayed kind of conservative for the first couple of days. We didn't have super great weather. So I hunted some of the you know edges of that stuff just to see what's going on. And there was, there wasn't as much going on as I was hoping. So I had some back 40 filming. I had some other things going on. I was going to kind of just, just I, because now I could get into that great spot 
I didn't want to abuse that. I wanted to say, okay, I'm going to wait until I know he's there. And then I'm going to go to the spots I've always wanted to go, but couldn't, but I'm not going to rush in there prematurely. Um, so I kind of hunt some observation things, just trying to see, okay, when's he going to start, you know, moving around a little more. And then my property that I have my original permission on the farmer discs the fields under completely so not just like a light disking i mean we go from a bean field to a dirt field 100 percent dirt <laughs> and i had to laugh because that's when i was in michigan yeah and i i spent the night at your house that one night and i just like listening to you tell me that story about how the 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 field got dissed under i felt like like you were suffering some kind of depression because <laughs> like you must have felt that that was going to play a huge impact in how the deer were going to move through your property this year. Huge. And it, and it did, man. I mean, all of the movement through the stuff I can hunt is predicated on having these food sources on the outside. All the movement goes from these interior bedding areas to these exterior ag fields. And without it, they're not going to come under the stuff I can hunt at all. They're just going to go the opposite direction to the other side of the square mile where there is food. So all, what I usually have like 50 acres of food that I could hunt in these farm yeah. fields that brings a bunch of deer through the areas I can hunt. And now it's dirt. And I mean, immediately the, the next day I was going from seeing, you know, 15, 20 deer coming out to these spots from any given location to zero. So if I hadn't been able to push into some of this neighbor stuff, I, it would have been almost no action at all. I had some food plots on my side, but this was the worst year that my food plots have ever been because right when I planned them, a drought hit. And so there's still food and there were still some deer hitting those little food plots, but it's very minimal. I mean, it's, it's an acre compared to 50 that I would usually have. Um, so... As you mentioned, super depressed, really worried about how this is going to change things. And now I say, okay, well, I'm not going to be hunting a bed to feed pattern anymore. I'm going to be hunting. I need like a rut kind of movement kind of thing because they'll still be in these bedding areas. And now I can hunt the stuff I always hunted plus a little bit extra. Um, The night of the 27th and the 28th, I do see him finally from a distance. The evening of the 30th, I'm now pushed into, by the time I start hunting, I should preface this. Like around the 25th or somewhere around there, I started getting into stuff. And my plan was to, based on the wind, kind of rotate around this main bedding that historically he'd been checking for does and hanging out in and and just kind of slowly push my way in further and further as observations or sign tells me I should. Yeah. Um, Because again, I hadn't hunted in this stuff before. I'd watched it, but I hadn't hunted it. So I was going to kind of like tightening uh I don't know, just squeezing down yep. day by day as, as I, based off what I saw. Right. And you had some restrictions too, because you had an X amount of time to do it before you had to leave and go start the back 40 stuff. Exactly. So, so yeah. So I knew that there was this countdown clock coming down that eventually I'd have to, you know, I'd have, I'd have to leave. Even if he was still there and still running around, I'd have to leave. Um, so I see him the 27th and 28th from a long ways away. The 30th, I see him with a doe and he's locked on a doe. And I told this story a few weeks ago. He's locked on the doe. They're heading the opposite direction. I can finally 
get into the stuff he's in though. So I actually get out of my tree and I chase him down and I tried to stalk him as close as I could get to them. Cause I knew, I, I knew where they're going. There was nowhere else they were going to go except for to the cornfield that was north of this area. So this isn't, this would be a field that's adjacent to my dirt field. Um, I can't hunt the cornfield, but I can now hunt some of the bedding stuff that gets close to it. So I get out of the tree, I stalk in as close as I can get, uh, but eventually that wind dies down, they get out of sight, and they're they're basically in the cornfield, it's dead, no wind now, and there's other deer around. So I realize, okay, I, I'm, I'm stuck, this is as far as I got, I got to hunker down, uh, but I was close to one of my food plots, and on the 27th and 28th, I had seen him scent check that food plot, and I'd also seen a lot of does that for whatever reason were leaving that cornfield and walking the edge down to my food plot. So I thought, well, there's a chance that that doe will go to the corn, feed there for a while, and maybe she'll transition down to hit the food plot like these other does had been doing that I'd watched. So I just was able to move another, like, I don't know how far I went. I was basically there. I just just kind of crept a little bit closer to the spot where if they decided to come along this edge and cross the creek to check that food plot, they'd be in range. How far? Uh, 40. Okay. And, uh, you know, the night, I don't know, by this time it was down to the last half hour of daylight, maybe by the time I had to hunker down and with maybe 10 minutes of daylight left, I see a doe pop over the hill and then tines and it was him. And they did exactly what I was hoping they would do. Almost. She transitioned from the corn to the food plot, which I still don't understand. They left like a hundred acre corn cut cornfield, right? Yeah. I think it was still cut. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been cut by then. You sent me pictures um, of them standing. Yeah. So they left a huge cut cornfield to walk 100 yards across a wide open dirt field to get to a one-acre food plot. Um, and a bunch of deer were doing that. I would have thought it would be the opposite. And usually it is. They would hit the food plot first and then go to the big field. But for whatever reason, these deer were doing it the opposite. And this buck followed her. But instead of them walking the edge, which most of these deer would do, they were about 50 yards farther out in the field. So I'm 40 yards inside the cover and they're 50 yards out into the field and they cross daylight fades. The closest they get, they got to about 70 yards from me. Um, but that was it. So very exciting encounter. Super cool that it happened. Um, it was, it was exciting to see an aggressive move like that, you know, not quite come together, but sort of proved out like the concept could have worked. Yeah. And, um, you know, then it was, I'm going to be hunkered in here and he's going to be locked on that dough. And in the next two days, next day and a half, I did see him again. Um, basically I was trying to push in on where I thought this dough was going to go back and forth. And I, I saw him, but never was able to get super close. Um, which takes us then to November 2nd and we're staring my back 40 start date in the face. We're running out of time. And, um, Again, you know this story. I made an aggressive move right to the very smack dab middle of this bedding and hunted a tree that I'd watched for years that I always wanted to hunt um, but hadn't been able to. And I got in there, got a new stand set up. And, and I should say, like, I'm not hunting prepped stands or anything. This is every single day. Every morning I'm going in there and hanging a new set. Every night I'm tearing down and moving. Um, I've never been that mobile before. This was every single sit I was in a new place, almost. Um, so that was a lot of work, but I think it helped me in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, he came through before daylight. He was there at 10 yards, couldn't shoot him. Eventually got to my downwind side, blew out. Um, saw him chasing does and cruising still in there throughout the day. Um, I think 
I think a couple things about this because because that happened right he he winded me right close busted out of there but then he stuck around chasing does and then like four hours later he crossed the creek with my wind was blowing down about 200 yards away and caught something again caught my wind there but uh you know headed off after that and then the next day i bump him when i'm walking to an evening set he's better with a doe about 150 yards from there he's still in that area better with a locked on doe i bump him out of there then the next night now i'm making another adjustment based off you know he's locked on this doe if she's going to come out you know they're not going to come right by where i bumped them but she might come out you know downwind of that spot so i make an adjustment and here he comes following the doe that next night so keep seeing him in this damn little area like a 10 to 20 acre chunk he doesn't want to leave it yeah and i've I've like tried to think about this. Like how come I'm seeing this mature buck over and over? I'm hunting the heck out of this general area. Um and he's still moving in daylight. That's something that you don't see from a mature buck in Michigan very often. So either is he dumb or is is there something going on here? And my best analysis is that number one. I am being, you know, as obsessive as I possibly can about all the details, right? So I'm not perfect, but I'm as close as I can possibly be. So yeah, he got downwind of me, but he must have, you know, with those, with my ozone, with all the things I'm doing, it must have not been like the obvious, oh my God, that's a human that's right there. It yeah. must have been like, I don't like it. I'm getting out of here. But um, it was enough of a head scratcher that he was willing to still be active in there. Number two, this deer or this is a mature buck that wanted to get on these does and there was hot does and that clouds judgment. So the rut yep. was clouding his judgment. And finally, a lot of this hunting was going on in a place that this deer historically had not been bothered. This was his safe zone. And for years he called this his safe zone and it was always safe. And so now in year five, all of a sudden you're telling me that my bedroom is no longer safe. It might take you a little while to come to grasps with that. So I think he was a little bit hanging on to his safe place. He's like, damn it, this can't be happening. This has always been safe. It's always been safe. So uh, he stuck with it. And and I kept poking around. And, um, you know, that uh, eventually proved to be his demise. I didn't talk to you about this, but... I did talk about this on a podcast two weeks ago. Um, I eventually had to leave for the back 40, hunted out there, killed a super cool buck. And and because I killed that buck early in the trip, I had a couple day window where I didn't need to be hunting out there um, until our next set of guests came out. So I had two days in between where I could come back and hunt the trans spots. And so I did. And I had three encounters with him. One morning I went in on the south side of this bedding area. And at this point my plan was, I'm just going to I'm going to stick to this area. I'm just going to kind of volume hunt it. It's kind of crazy that I'm spending as many sits as I am in this like 20 to 30 acre zone, but this is where he wants to be. And until he tells me otherwise, I'm going to keep pounding it. And so yeah. I got in there and you know, an hour after daylight, here he comes cruising and he cruises in like he's heading right to me. I'm clipped on, I'm ready, and he gets like 55 yards and then kind of angles the other way and angles out you know, to 70, I tried to snort wheeze to him and he didn't like it. And he kind of just boogered out of there. See him again that night, chasing a doe way off in the distance from another spot. Next morning I go in to the North side of this bedding area. And most people heard this story two weeks ago, 
Dan, I don't know if you know this or not, but he follows in the doe, blows through my one spot I could shoot, gets into this thick, nasty stuff. I panic. I'm desperate. I've spent so many days and hours and so much time and energy trying to get this buck. And in that moment, I'm thinking, I got to get a shot. I have to get a shot. I can't let this this opportunity that's finally here slip away. And so I forced a shot through a little tiny pocket in the brush that really wasn't a good pocket at all. And I miss him hitting branches and crap. Um, And then I had to go to the back 40 again. I leave the back 40. I'm out there for seven days. That takes me to the final hunt. The gun season, right? Yeah. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. So gun season opens for seven days. I'm not there. I get back from the back 40. Now I can hunt. I'm tired. I'm wore out. I'm kind of sick and tired of it, but I feel like I got to try. Um, every day that gun season goes further on, there's a chance that one of these other people in the area are going to shoot him. Um, so I go out and say, like, yeah, I'm going to stick to the original plan. I'm going to get back there in that pocket, see if he's still there. And the first day, it was just dead. Um, saw very little. A neighbor shot a deer, and there was a bunch of commotion uh, coming out. I saw what looked to be a trespasser on a property that isn't supposed to be hunted. I saw flashlights out there. So I kind of ran them down and wasn't able to connect, but kind of let these people know that, Hey, we saw you at least. So all that happens. And then there's no deer heading to the food on the other neighbors. Like they had been. And I had seen that they had actually disc that field under two. So now all of the food that's adjacent to anything I can hunt is all disced under. And I'm sitting here Saturday night thinking, all right, based off what I saw and all this pressure and that all the food's gone now, these deer just, I bet you these does have just got to be going to the other side of the square mile. And I still bet you if he's alive and I don't know this, I don't have confirmation he's alive, but if he is, I bet you he's still going to be bedding in this area and checking this area for does, but he's probably going to be heading in a different direction than has been going on all year. So the next day I decide, all right, I'm going to go hunt back on the main stuff that I used to hunt all the time on my main property that I've hunted for years and years and years. I'm going to hunt down on that side that has been absolutely dead all season because of the dirt field. I mean, I'd been checking cameras. I'd been hunting some stuff where I could still see in there and it'd been just a ghost town. But I thought maybe because they're on a, a, a different neighbor. Now I've got, and I'm talking about two different sets of neighbors. There was a recently cut cornfield on one east side of the square mile. And then there was a standing cornfield to the south of the square mile that I knew of that were now like the only food sources in the area since everything up on me had been dissed. So my theory was that I'm going to hunt down in this spot where I can intercept anything that wants to head to the south cornfield coming out of this bedding area. And I'd be able to see from way off in the distance, anything that wants to go to the east side of the square mile and, and at least see if my hunch is right. And then from there I can make an adjustment and it's gun season. I'm taking a gun. Um, we're going to see what happens and, and kind of go from there. That's what I set up on. I'm sitting kind of in between the good bedding that's off to my North aways. And then there's a little swamp to my South. And then there's other neighbor that standing cornfields further back behind that. The first three, four hours of the night were dead. It was snowing. I thought it'd be great, but nothing was moving. Nothing was moving until the last half hour, a doe pops out and the doe starts walking down my way. And then right behind her, it's Tran. And at this point, I'm thinking, holy crap, he's alive. This is amazing. But they're heading into like this timber ahead of me instead of to the, excuse me, where I'm at. 
is kind of in between like a little finger of a field that goes into this timber on one side and then a power line on the other. And so they pop out in the power line, but then very quickly cross into the timber and I can't see anything. And I'm guessing that they're going to stay in the thick of that timber and foul that all the way down to the neighbor that does have the corn. And they probably won't come out to the open where I can get a shot. I still got to be ready though. So I get ready. I'm watching. I'm already thinking like, okay, based on what I saw, what does that mean for tomorrow? He's alive. I can adjust on this. They're heading to the South. Um, as I'm thinking through this, the doe pops out again, but now she's closer to me on the power line side. Like she's heading to this little food plot that I have over in this other direction too. I'm thinking, man, they're going to come close. This is actually going to happen. And then I see a buck pop up and I look at it and it's not Tran. It's this like, mini me of Tran. There's this other buck I've been seeing all year that I passed a bunch. That's like a two or three year old miniature version of Tran and he's with her. And now I'm thinking, damn it. That was him. I didn't see the real Tran. It was the fake Tran. Um, <laughs> ah, like I, I'm having this like, internal battle. I swear to God it was him. How could I, there's no way I could have mistaken it. He's, he's just massive compared to this one. And as this is all playing out, mini Tran pops over to my side of the tree line, comes across this field um, this little finger and gets to the downwind side of me, comes all the way across to the downwind side of me and stops, hits the wind and has like that. You know what? When you, you do the same stuff I do, use nosonics, you're playing other, you know, scent control things. He stops, he looks, he's thinking, he's like, I don't, there's something over there I don't really like, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And he's looking, looking. And then he turns and just starts walking back the way he came. That doe pops out. He stops. He's getting kind of like funky, doing the head thing, staring at me. And I'm thinking anytime now, this is going to blow up. He's going to booger out of here. And if the real train is here, he's gone too. And just when I'm like worrying through all that, the real train steps out of the thick timber and starts walking right out to the edge to where that doe is. And he comes walking right out, gets to the edge, kind of turns quartering to me. And I pull up the scope and I look at him and there's a huge tree close to me in between us that he is right on the edge of. And if, if I let him keep walking, he will go behind that big tree that's by me. So it covers like a, like a 60 yard zone, or I don't, maybe not that much for maybe 30, 40 yards of area that he would cover. And then once he got to the other side of that tree, he'd be almost downwind. So my thought is it's, it's now or never basically. So I prop up the gun, my elbows on my knees and he's kind of quarter two and basically put on the shoulder and. And that was it. I let her eat and, um, it happened fast. It was crazy. He went pile driving out of there, disappears behind a big clump of trees in the swamp. And, you know, a couple hours later, I got some buddies and we went in there, great blood trail and Tran was on the ground. It, uh, it came together and, you know, that, just just an hour before that, I'd been texting with my friends saying, man, I think it's it got boogered up hard this weekend. All this food's gone. It's just dead. I'm betting I'm probably going to have to pull out for a couple weeks and just wait until December. Maybe you know I can refigure stuff out, and I'm just going to observe and move cameras around. I, I did not think things were going to come together. And uh, yeah. it had been a long, crazy, wild ride, and I was definitely at the end of my rope by the time that had come together. I mean, I'd hunted a ton for this deer. Yeah. Um, and he had, he, I just felt like I was chasing my tail. I was seeing him close, not close enough. I mean, I had him within 65 yards or 60 yards. So many times I had the, the miss, the almost shot at 10 yards, the spot and stalk, the, 
you know, I'm here, he's there, he's there, I'm here, uh, over and over and over. And that's exciting and amazing, but it was also really frustrating and being just so close, but not close enough. And also every day thinking like any time now, the way he's moving, someone's going to kill him. Um, and it's, it's probably not going to be me because I seemingly can't get out of my own way or can't get that final piece to fall in to place. And I just remember as I was walking to the stand that day, actually, as I was walking in, I remember thinking to myself, man, you got to get lucky eventually. Like you just, right. You gotta, right. Yeah. I was like, you're doing the right stuff. Like I kept on trying to think like, what am I doing wrong? Is there something I should be doing different? Do I need to be going about this different? I kept thinking, man, I don't think I would be doing anything terribly wrong. You just haven't had that final little tiny piece of luck go your way. Just keep doing the right things. And if you do the right things enough times, one of these times that final puzzle piece will be where you need it. And, and that's what was on my mind as I went to the stand. And, and finally that's what happened. The one little chip went my way Yeah, and it happened. I'll tell you what, man, that, that is a, a statement in itself. Again, something that, man, people get real frustrated and I, I, I get it because they don't get the time to hunt like me and you do. Right. And some of them may, may be limited to, um, weekends or only five days of vacation that they can allocate towards hunting or whatever. But if, if you put in your time and you cover your bases and you do the right thing, man, I am confident now it doesn't happen every time, but I'm confident that you're going to get more encounters. You're going to have the tide eventually turns your way. I, I feel. Yeah. And, and sometimes it really is it, like there's these different, there's these different, um, parts of a hunt and you need to check off each one of these different boxes. And sometimes you can get away with checking fewer of them. Sometimes you need more of them to be checked. Um, you know, sometimes you're going to get just straight up lucky. And then other times you got to do everything just right for it to happen. And other days you can do everything just right. And it still doesn't happen. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it goes back to what we've said a thousand times. You, you check every box you possibly can. You work as hard as you possibly can. You hunt, you know, as much as you can when it's right. And eventually good things will happen. Like you said, it's not going to happen every time. Maybe it doesn't happen every year. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that in this case, you know, I'm able to hunt more than a lot of people. And so in this scenario, it required a lot of volume. It required a lot of doing the right thing over and over and over, um, for all the different mistakes and things to, to iron out and for it to actually come together for me. So, so I'm thankful for being able to do that, but I'm also, I, I guess it also came down to just keeping a little bit of belief and persisting. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of times, there was a lot of negative self-talk over the last two months. There was a lot of days where I was kicking myself or mad about picking this spot rather than that spot or thinking, man, you're never gonna get another opportunity. Nah, you're never going to see him again, man. You're never gonna, you know, uh, there was just so much built into this hunt because it was three years running because all the work in the spring and summer had been about this deer. I can't tell you how many days I've spent with binoculars staring out at these fields and these openings trying to see him. I mean, hundreds of hundreds of hours, um, watching and searching and thinking and planning. Um, and then it makes what's kind of an absurd thing, the case, which is I was 
obsessing over a deer and letting it consume a ton of my mindset and my thought and my time and energy. And so it, it builds this thing up into this huge thing. And I kept telling my wife that, yeah, it's just a deer, but it's also like so much work. So much of me has gone into this thing and, and yeah. there's not many other things in life I can think of where I can work unbelievably hard. I can work, 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 work and do everything I know I'm supposed to do and still not get the payoff. Like yep. when I'm writing a book, I knew that if, if I work my butt off and if I do the stuff I need to do that I know how to do, I'm going to get that book done. If, you know, if I put in the work I need to, to do a good podcast and do the right preparation and plan and ask the right questions and spend the time leading into it, make sure we do a good job editing. I know we'll get a good podcast out. Um, that's not the case with the hunt like this. Yep. And that was like, I was getting to this point where I was, I was feeling, I had actually reached a point of resignation to be honest with you. I'd gotten to a point where I'd, I'd been so frustrated and like, uh, stressing about, I was loving it, but also stressing. And then I got to gun season when gun season hits, I always kind of used to just kind of hands off and you realize that it's out of my hands. Now there's way more people out there now than usual and a lot better chance of them killing him. He's probably going to get smoked by someone. And I kind of had to be like, okay, you did your very best. You worked your damnedest. You put in the time. Um, so I kind of made peace with things when November 15th rolled around. Um, and, I and you know, I don't have much advice to give a person, Mark, and especially you. But one thing that I've learned throughout the years is if you can learn to get past that or over that feeling, hunting becomes so much more than than that, if that makes sense. Which part? Like the stress part? Like, like you said, it's like you can work as hard as you want and the payoff still won't be there and you start to get this – there's some sort of stress buildup or uh, the the worrisome uh, buildup that you were feeling. I'm telling you right now, man, I used to be like that too. And I've since, I feel like I since plan prep, I do all the things, but I leave the worry at home. I, I leave all the worry. Oh, I, I just don't do it anymore. I just go out and I hunt. And I feel like when I was able to, do that and make that step and just say, you know, dude, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And, and accept that fact, dude, I feel like I've reached a different level in hunting and I've been able to enjoy it so much more. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's awesome, man. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm probably just not that person <laughs> yeah. that I can, yeah. I can, I can, I get to that point. Like I've, I kind of got to that point. I had to force myself into that and, and realize like, Hey, you tried, and this is where we're at and it is. Yeah. And you know, what, what has helped me the most there's kids, you know, yeah. whenever I have a bad hunt or whenever I feel like this stuff didn't go the way I wanted, I would just remind myself of the boys that I was going to come home to and see them and hug them. And you know, that always would bring me back to what's really most important, but, but I'm just so goal oriented and I, I, I can't help, but put so much into this and, and really, really, really want it to come together. We talk about every year. Um, it's something I, I work through every year, but, um, I don't there's see the dogs. That. Yeah. There's the dogs. Sorry, there's man. the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, congratulations, man. Yeah. This one was a wild ride. He, he worked me over. He beat me up. He stressed me out. He made me work my tail off. Um, and, and it was pretty, 
satisfying for me to get to a point where I kind of was okay with not being able to kill him. I knew that was a possibility. And then to have it actually come together was was a crazy, amazing, satisfying ending that um, yeah. that leaves me in a very happy place today. Absolutely, man. Those, these big bucks, man, they can make us smile or they can make us cringe, you know? So congratulations, brother. Thank you, my friend. I'm glad that uh, I could share it with you over these years. And um, thanks, for all the, thanks for all the kind words and advice and encouragement <laughs> along the way. Absolutely. And uh, I guess what? Here's to, uh, here's to Whitetails for, dare I say, 2021? It's going to be a good year. It's going to be a better it's gonna, year. It's got to be better than it's this gotta year. It's got to be a better year, man. 2021, <laughs> is it's only up from here. <laughs> That's right. All right, man. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's catch up soon and talk about the, the plan for next year. All right, so Dan had to bounce off. He had a, he had a hard stop, so we kind of had to rush things a little bit there at the end. But I wanted to take a second here to kind of tie a bow on this and, and synthesize some of the main takeaways or lessons learned here for me and, and that I think maybe we can all take from this because this isn't, yeah, this is a story of my own personal hunt and, and this kind of journey I went on, but uh, my hope all along has always been that by sharing these stories, you all are able to learn right alongside me. And so now as I'm wrapping up this hunt and I'm trying to process what what did I take away from this, uh, I want to make sure that that you all can take away something too. Uh when I, you know, over this last seven days, uh, essentially it's been seven days as I'm recording this since the hunt actually happened now at this point, um, here's what stands out to me. One of the major things going into this hunt that I wanted to do differently this year was to be more aggressive and mobile than ever before. You've heard me talk about this throughout the year. That was a goal of mine. And you heard me just mention to Dan that I thought I did that. And, and I really do. I think I was more mobile, more uh, adaptable than I ever have. Um, I really fine-tuned my mobile setup. I've, I had the process nailed. I mean, I was going up and down, up and down every day for day after day after day from, you know, I did some of that in early October. did a lot of that late October, right on through the middle and, and almost towards the end of November. And because I had dialed in that process and become really comfortable with my gear, it wasn't something that, that held me back. Previously, when I wasn't comfortable with those two things, it was a real inconvenience to, to move from this stand to that stand, to go hang a new stand 50 yards over there, or to adjust 20 yards, or to, to move it all. You just want to go hunt the pre-hung sets that were there and easy. Um, but oftentimes that's not going to put you in the place you need to be, especially if you're bow hunting. Um, this year I wasn't going to let that stand in my way anymore. So I made the moves when I had to make them. When I saw movement that was 30 yards farther away, I would bump up. I would make that move. Um, I would go in the next day, two hours before daylight and hang new sets, something maybe five years ago I never would have done. Now I'm realizing time and time again that that stuff pays off. It's inconvenient. It's a pain in the butt. It's not easy. It's hard at times. Um, it takes some work to get comfortable doing that kind of stuff. But so often, I'm finding that the hard thing is usually the right thing to do. If this is the goal you're working towards, of course. Secondly, I had to adopt a different kind of strategy, though, as the season progressed. So early on, when I started this this 
couple week period where I was going to be hunting for Tran pretty aggressively. That first week, um, I was mobile. I was bouncing all around the outside of this area trying to figure out where is this deer? What is he doing? I hadn't seen him at all since late September. So during that period, I was moving. I was moving. I was moving, adjusting based off wind, adjusting based off of you know different things going on. But once we got into that second week of November, I had been seeing him. I had been having these encounters. I kind of had it dialed in what he was doing. He was staying in this little tiny pocket. And, and every one of the times I saw him or encountered him, it was within this, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 acres or less even. You could almost zero it down to, I don't know. I mean, a lot, 75% of it maybe was happening in five acres. Um, it was really a small little pocket where so much of this stuff was happening. So eventually I got to the point where I was, I was bouncing from this spot to that spot and that spot to this spot. And I was realizing, oh, he was here. And then I was over there and then I was there and he was here. And I got to the point where I realized, okay, there's sometimes when you need to be mobile and you need to be bouncing around, but maybe there's sometimes when you shouldn't do that and you just need to hunker down and hunt a basic zone that you know is right, that you know you've got the right wind for, and that you know he will eventually come through and give it two or three days or two or three sits, give it the time for him to rotate through there. And so I eventually realized, okay, I'm going to stop trying to get fancy with it and I'm going to stop outsmarting myself and I'm going to zero in on these couple spots and, and just hunt him until he's either here or he's not. And that is what eventually led me to, you know, those last uh, two out of the final three encounters with him. One of them was when he came in and got to about 55. And then the other one was when I missed him with a bow. And then finally I had to adjust later. But I, I do think that there was something to be said about finally realizing that my my comment, my my intuition was saying, oh, this is crazy. He, he can't keep popping up in the same stupid places. Um, he's got to have moved on. He, he must have smelled you by now. You must have done something. He should have been educated. But I kept seeing something different. And eventually I had to tell myself, okay, don't, don't, uh, what am I trying to say here? Believe what your eyes are telling you and don't outsmart yourself. Sometimes you just got to be there and wait until things go the right way. So there's, there's this interesting line you have to walk between be mobile, be mobile, get that first set, get that first set, adjust, change, surprise them. But then sometimes you just got to be there and wait. So that's something that I don't know if what I just said there clearly articulates this thing yet, but there's, there's this balance that I'm finding and you need to learn how to and when to strike that balance and go one way or the other, which then brings me to another big takeaway, which is related to this whole idea of being mobile. And that's the importance of adapting fast more than any other year this season on this set of properties. I had to deal with major changes, lots of different stuff going on for the first time ever that I can remember out here, these crop fields got plowed under. And one of those happened in late October and changed things dramatically. And then another set of fields got disked under and I don't know, it was like November 12th, 13th, somewhere around there. And that changed things even more dramatically. So each time that happened, it, it, it was like a light switch event for the local deer populations. And I went from knowing what deer do in these places historically year after year to all of a sudden they're doing things completely different. If I had not been mobile, if I wasn't willing to quickly say, okay, things are changing, 
How are they changing? What do I need to do? And I had to do that within a day or two. And, and that was key to staying on this deer. Other examples would be uh, hunting pressure. Several different times I had hunters really change the game for me. Uh, some of you might remember the story back in late October when I thought I was getting in close. I was really in the best hot, fresh sign, hunting this spot I hadn't been able to hunt in the past. Finally snuck in there, finally had the wind to do it. And then a neighbor shot a deer like 50 yards away from me and blew their wind all three and really blew that spot up. I thought that was going to be the spot. It wasn't. I had to quickly change, put together a new plan, how to attack this core zone from a different direction where that hunting pressure wasn't. I was able to do that this year and within a few days got back on them. Another example of this was the whole uh, example of when Tran was locked on that doe. I saw him locked on a doe heading a different direction and he was the only deer I'm after and he was heading to a food source away from me and in past years I would have said well you know there he goes I guess the next hour and a half of the hunt is just going to be me sitting here and wondering what's going to happen. Uh, that maybe would have been me six, seven, eight years ago, but this year it was, nope, I need to think fast. I need to adapt and I'm going to be aggressive and make this thing happen. So I decided, you know what, with this wind we have, I think I know where these deer are going. I think I know what they're going to do. I might be able to cut them off. And I went for it, got out of my tree, took a stab at going after those deer and it didn't come together, but it almost did. So once again, I just have seen examples of quickly analyzing a situation and adapting to those new things fast and being confident in how you adapt. That proved to be very, very important. I guess the very most important example was the very last one. I mean, it is the very most important. I went from focusing on this core zone I've been talking about all day. Um, that was where I focused like two weeks of the hunt. And then I get back from the back 40 seven days later and everything's different. The deer are gone. Hunting pressure's increased. They're doing things different. And I had to quickly figure out, okay, why are they gone and where have they gone to? And my hunch was that they're heading in a totally different direction out of this core zone. I made the pivot and lo and behold, that was where they were. And I killed the buck that night. Now, yeah, I got a little lucky. Of course I did. Like I mentioned, you have to get lucky every once in a while, but I think because I was willing to make that quick change, trust the gut, trust my analysis, and then move on it fast. I wasn't going to sit in my usual spot for two, three, four days. Well, eventually it'll change, eventually it'll change. Nope. When you're not seeing what you want to see, change fast with it. And that's what I did. This brings me to the final big takeaway, which is related to what Dan was talking about there at the end, when he made a really good point about how he's been able to get away from the stress and the worry of hunting season and just enjoy it. And he's 100% correct. That is what we need to be striving for. And for some people, that's a lot easier to do than for other people. If you listen to this podcast, you know me. You know me well. You've heard me verbally vomit for seven years now, telling you everything, telling you my deepest, darkest fears, telling you about the best things I've done, the worst things I've done. You've heard me share my mistakes and my successes. You've heard me try to verbally work out my thought process. You've heard me talk about my stresses and think through my strategies. You, you, you know what you know what you're going to get when it comes to me. And one of those things is being very goal-oriented, being very mission-focused, shooting for the moon, and, and having a hard time not 
striving for those things. That's me. That's, that's just who Mark Kenyon is. I want to do that stuff and I love that stuff, but it also inevitably does lead to stress, some frustration, and it leads to, you know, every hunting season I have this back and forth going on in my head and, and I've talked about it every year. So you, you know this. Um, and what I come back to every year and this year again is being able to find this strike this right balance. So much of what we're talking about here today and of this hunt comes down to striking balance. For me, it's this balance between chasing goals, chasing a dream, chasing something you're trying to achieve or or whatever it might be, filling the freezer for the first time, killing your first deer, killing a deer, killing your first three and a half year old deer, whatever. Um, striving for that and pushing yourself to do that. I really personally think there is value in pushing yourself to do things that are hard, to take on things that are challenging and that you might fail at. Maybe that you probably will fail at. I think there's value in trying to do really hard shit and forcing yourself to grow and change and to face that adversity and to push through that. I think that leads to growth. I think that leads to good things. I think that at least for me, is, is, is a really important part of life. So I like that. But what I also have been continuously trying to do is to get better at enjoying not just reaching that pinnacle, but really enjoying the entire process. And I'm really good at enjoying the process prior to hunting season when I'm thinking about it and planning for it. I'm really good at enjoying the process after hunting season when it's all said and done and I can look back on it and enjoy it. In the moment, I'm great at enjoying the process 70% of the time probably. I really love it. And then 30% of the time, I get too worked up and I get too focused on when things aren't going well or why things aren't going well or this decision versus that decision or this outcome versus that outcome. And that's this thing that I just got to keep on working on. But this year, again, I'm reminded of process, process, process. And throughout this year, I kept on going back to this when I read get into one of those little low points. Um, At least what I've seen, my progress has has gotten to the point now where I'm not feeling like stressed out and bummed for days on end. It's it's like I'll have a moment and then I have a little mental conversation or internal conversation and then I get out of it. But I'm going to have those those ups and downs and I'm going to have these conversations, a little self-talk, crazy Mark shit, where I say, okay, Mark, you're frustrated, you're bummed out. Okay but that's just part of it. Or, okay, that's not achieving anything. What can you do next? How do you move forward from this? Where do we go? And you know what? Something I didn't mention, but probably should be mentioned, is that this last weekend of hunting, all right, I told you that I I got back from the back 40 and then I started hunting that weekend. And that first day, that Saturday, Saturday morning, Saturday night was a disaster. Didn't see anything. Neighbor shot a deer, saw a trespasser, all that stuff happened. That night... I came back in, was chatting with my wife, and I said, you know what, I'm just kind of, I've been giving it my all. I've been hunting nonstop between here and the back 40 and hosting people and filming and doing all these things, and it's great. I can't complain about it. I love it. I'm very, I just want to make it clear that I, I don't want it to sound like I'm complaining about this, but at the same time, it also is, it's a lot of work still, and I had gotten to the point where I was, I was worn out to, I was just worn to the grindstone. I mean, I was just whooped. And I said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to go out in the morning. 
I'd originally planned on hunting the next morning, but I'd been away from my family a lot. I hadn't had a weekend morning to wake up and play with the kids and have a good time. I hadn't done that in three and a half weeks. And I said, you know what? I'm not going out tomorrow. It's snowing. It's cold. It's awesome. You know, it's stupid not to go. I should go, but I'm not. I'm sleeping in. I'm going to play with the kids. I'm going to have a good time. I want to have a little bit of this back. I want to enjoy that, and then I think I'll be more refreshed and, and enjoy it more when I go back out in the evening. And at this point in the hunting season, that's probably what I need to be a little more focused on. And that's what I did. And lo and behold, a morning with the kids um, led to an evening with a buck on the ground. Uh, coincidence? Correlation? I don't know. But maybe... That was Mother Nature or the good Lord above or something telling me that, uh, you know, sometimes you got to take a step back, enjoy the process, have fun with this thing. This thing is about fun. This thing is about enjoying the connection we have with wild animals and wild places and our family and friends. And, and once again, that was, you know, that was, that was illuminated, I guess, for me, for lack of a better term. At the same time, though, at the same time, persistence is the name of the game as well. Keeping at it, believing it could still happen, grinding at it day after day, all those early mornings. I mean, nothing can really make up for that. Sure, you might get lucky some years and kill early. Sure, you might get you know something bounce your way and you don't need to put in a lot of time and work. But if you want to have consistent success, with anything really but in this case deer hunting in my case trying to kill a mature buck on small properties in michigan you gotta just keep after it and the three-year hunt for tran all these things i just mentioned are definitely wrapped up into it but the name of the game the the big headline across the top over all this is persistence persistence through Every crazy thing, every obstacle, every mistake, every bad decision, every good night, every bad night, every early morning, every late night, every time where you're tired and didn't want to get up in the morning and want to hit the snooze button on the, the alarm clock, persistence is what killed this deer. So that is, uh, is my typical Mark Kenyon long-winded way of saying this has been a hell of a hunt, a heck of a journey. I hope that through this story, this one here on today's podcast, but also the story that I've been telling you that has stretched over so many podcasts over these years, I hope that there's been something that that resonates with you or that you've been able to learn from it. Maybe you learned from my mistakes. Maybe you learned from my success. Uh, maybe you learned from all my knuckleheaded, um, navel-gazing, um, talking all this stuff out as I'm just thinking it through. I don't know, but I, I sure am hoping that we all can come out of this um, having learned something. And I just appreciate all of you following along. I know some people tire of my stories of these deer over and over again. Um, I hope that's not the case too often because I, I enjoy the heck out of it. I find um, I find it just to be never endingly fascinating and so I'm, I'm thankful that you could all be here along with me so that is a wrap for today uh the only other thing i'll mention is that new back 40 episodes are up speaking of high points this season my hunt with my dad killing his first deer with archer equipment that just dropped here a few days ago 
it was uh, it was another one of those examples where family, friends, enjoying the process, enjoying everything, the ups and the downs. Um, man, that that really came to life for me during that experience. So, man, it has been a crazy, crazy hunting season. I've 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 been really lucky to have a lot of things come together and, and learned a lot and, and enjoyed a lot of incredible experiences out there. I hope you've had a successful, fun, and fulfilling hunting season with your friends and family. I hope you're staying healthy. I know these are tough times for a lot of people. Um, so I'm wishing you all the best here in these days after Thanksgiving. I hope you can enjoy this holiday season. hope you can stay healthy and safe. And best of luck out there hunting. Thank you for being a part of this community. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.